Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco. This is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my friend and colleague, Rachel Toback. Rachel and I met at a security event hosted by Dropbox, where we spoke on a panel together. Rachel was a winner of the wild spectator sport, the DEF CON social engineering capture the flag competition three years in a row, and has shared her animated story and the modern threat of social engineering broadly. Uh, Rachel is one of those people that you can type her name into a search engine uh, and you'll see all sorts of great stuff about her story. During the day, Rachel's currently working at Course Hero, an online learning platform in UX research. She's also the creative director for Women in Security and Privacy. And in the rest of her spare time, she co-founded a social engineering cybersecurity company with her husband and works to train people and companies on the social engineering risk that social media opens them up to. Rachel, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So Rachel, you're, you're recently back from Las Vegas, uh, where you competed in SECTF for the third time. How did this time go compared to previous years? Oh, man. So this year was so challenging. I had a feeling it was going to be pretty hard because when I did my OSINT, my open source intelligence, all the gathering and info that I can find publicly and available online, I saw that my company did not have wide access or use of the internet. And one of the big flags for the SECTF is 26 points, and that is going having the target go to a malicious URL. It's not a real malicious URL, but we're just kind of uh, symbolizing that they would do that. And they can't because they don't have the internet. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, I got in the booth and I was a little nervous and then um, it was confirmed when I got on the phone with them because I'm not allowed to like call them beforehand, reach out beforehand. Um, so when the, my first target was like, uh, we can't, I, I, I don't have a browser. Like I can't tell you what type of browser I have. I was like, oh no. <laughs> um, and so I just started rallying through um, every non-tech specific flag I could get, what pest and extermination service provider they have. Uh, what type of security guards they have, what type of machine they're on. And it was just, I was, I was convinced that there was no way that it would be possible for me to uh, become a winner this year just because I didn't have the internet. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big uh, surprise, I would say, right? It's so <laughs> interesting that, you know, today, so much of the security that we talk about is like, based on the internet. Um, so that's, that's pretty tricky. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I know your story and I suspect that many of our listeners know your story for any of our listeners that don't know how you got into the security and privacy field. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience doing SECTF at DEF CON 24 a few years yes. ago? Yeah, of course. So at DEFCON 23, mm. my husband gave me a call. I was still at work um, and he gave me a call and he was like, you know how I told you that you don't have to come to Vegas and I'm just going to go hang out with my coworkers and it's going to be great. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> he was like, well, I lied and you have to come to Vegas and you need to book a flight tonight. 
it was Friday. It was the Friday of DEF CON. It was already, DEF CON was already over uh, that day. And I was like, but it's, it's going to be almost over. Why would I come? I'm going to be on the outside. I'm not technical. I don't know anything. Like I was just like, no, no, no. And he literally had to convince me for an hour. I'm sitting in a conference room at work and he was like, okay, listen, they have this thing where they have people get into a glass booth and they call companies. And you know how you're always getting the Comcast bill lowered? Well, it's basically like that, except for <laughs> you're trying to get pieces of information that should be hidden and it's going to be great. You should totally come. So I was like, okay, fine. That sounds great. So I flew out. I saw two calls on Saturday because as you know, DEF CON's almost over by the time I got there on Saturday and I was hooked. I sat in the front row on the ground of Bally's and I was just staring up at that glass booth and I was like, that's going to be me next year for sure. And I ended up applying and Chris had Maggie who runs the social engineering capture the flag um, took a huge chance on me because I didn't have a background in SE and I ended up becoming a winner of it that year. It's so cool. And in fact, you're also in this particularly unique situation where I understand you've been a winner three years in a row. And sort of the only way to do that is to come in in second place. Because I understand if you're the, the, act, you know, the first place winner, then you're actually not allowed to compete again. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> a lot of people online have been asking me if there's some giant conspiracy that me and Had Maggie are creating so that I can continue competing. And I, I quite honestly, no, I just keep coming in second place every single year, it's but it so, works, it works out. Yeah. I think it, I think it works out. Um, it, particularly, um, because now that you've got this company that's all around SE, you know, you get to kind of be on the front lines of this huge competition every single year. Um, do you want to get first place? I mean, it would be cool to get first place because you get a black badge and then you can come to DEF CON for free um, mm. every single year for the rest of your life. So that would be cool. But I think if I did get first, I would actually be pretty bummed because <laughs> I would never be able to compete again. And competing yeah. is so fun. Yeah. Rachel, you have for a long time been really interested in the way that people think. And I think that that's clearly the reason you're so good at social engineering. Um, I understand that you had sort of an interest your whole life. And then in college, you actually got your BS in neuroscience and behavioral psychology. Um, I understand you were operating on rats in college and then became <laughs> a special needs educator. Um, and we had this really cool conversation a couple weeks ago. I'd love for you to share with our listeners sort of like why why were you so interested in understanding how the human brain works why did you choose to become an educator uh, for the special needs community why is that an important thing for you yes it's a very non-linear story so prepare yourself <laughs> um, I I'll start when I was a little kid I guess um, when I was a kid I was always a very um, creative child. Uh, and I later found out why that was, which I'll get to in a second. Um, I used to create whole worlds for me and my sister. So we would play in these imaginary worlds and every place in our house was a, a gateway to these worlds. Um, and this is kind of how I lived my life as a kid because I, I just played a lot, like not on the computer. I was actually like a really, um, like I wasn't allowed to play video games growing up. 
And so I kind of created my own video games in my head with my sister. And so that was kind of like my childhood. And then I saw Harriet the Spy as a kid and like everything changed. Um, I used to carry around a notebook and I had little spy gear. And I found out that you could win a what was called a spy ear. I don't know if you're familiar with what those are. They're like basically little bugs you can put in your house. Very creepy to give to children, but bugs <laughs> that you can put in your house. And I found out that was going to be the grand prize if you sold enough magazines. Um, and so in like sixth grade, I went door to door for weeks selling magazines to unsuspecting neighbors <laughs> so that I could get a spy ear and I got it. And I would go around and I would try and listen to things and I had periscopes and that was just like my whole childhood. And if you had come in and talked to me as a kid and said, Rachel, you know, this whole Harriet the Spy thing, well, there's a career in that. Everything would have been down that trajectory. And I would have been a social engineer from, you know, freshman year of college, basically. But I didn't know that this existed. Um, and so I went the only route that I knew how, and this was to understand human behavior. So when I was a kid growing up, um, my whole family worked in the special education field. Um, and so around the dinner table, a lot of our conversation was about um, special needs and how brains are unique and plastic. And, you know, what is something that you notice today that, that makes you feel like your brain is plastic? And just these are the types of conversations that I was raised with. I was so lucky. Um, and so I always thought about the world in this creative neuroplasticity manner. And so as I was growing up, I started noticing that like I was unique in some ways and I would talk about them with my family over the dinner table. And one of the things that I noticed is that I would go to school and I wouldn't recognize my friends. And my family was like, I'm sorry, like, what are you talking about? And I'd say like someone would come down the hall and they would say hi to me and I would have no idea who they were. And they were like, That's, that sounds really challenging. Like, tell me more. So I started like kind of taking notes in my little spy notebook about what was so challenging about this. And over time, um, I self-diagnosed myself growing up before I got my formal diagnosis with prosopagnosia, which is face blindness. And I started reading Oliver Sacks, which is, um, he's, he's an amazing um, neuroscientist who just actually recently passed away, but he had prosopagnosia as well. His famous book is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Um, in case you ever want to read about it. But uh, basically what, what this is like is you see somebody and your brain has a special way of identifying a face. And my brain does not have that special way of identifying a face. My, my faces that I see look just like other objects. And so when we look at other objects, we don't take in all the details of those objects, but we're supposed to for faces. And my brain does not do that. And so I always found it so fascinating, like what's going on with my fusiform gyrus in my brain, you know, like how do I study this? And so um, I took a lot of different classes growing up to try and understand what was going on. But the problem was that I was not good at school. <laughs> um, and so trying to teach myself and trying to learn, I hadn't quite figured out how to study yet or how to understand or how to learn these things. Um, and I guess I had, I had kind of this unique path in school because I, I didn't, I wasn't super successful. Do you want to hear about that too? I do actually. Yes, okay. I do. I think this is so, and, and I'll just interject and say, I think it's so wonderful that you're sharing this with us because I think that like everyone's brain works differently, right? And mm -hmm. any sort of, um, any sort of condition, you know, is going to be along a spectrum 
my husband is dyslexic. And when we first started dating, a lot of our communication started out text messaging. <laughs> and the guy would spell words wrong, which to me, like that's something I really just, I can't relate to. I'm a really excellent speller. And so I was a little <laughs> off and he was like, no, he, he didn't like come out and say like, Hey, we just started dating. I'm going to tell you that I'm dyslexic. And that's why my text messages are all spelled incorrectly. But mm -hmm. he would, he would, he would call me. And I was so unfamiliar at that time in sort of my dating life with talking with someone on the phone. And it was mm. wonderful. Like we actually were able to connect in this way that you obviously can't when it's just text-based. Um, but now, of course, you know, we've been married for five years and I've come to learn that he's actually an incredible writer with a very extensive vocabulary, but he doesn't, he's not able to spell the way that I do. Um, and I just, I think it's, these things are invisible, right? Yes. You, you can't, I, I can't look at you and have any idea that when you look at my face, you don't immediately, you know, maybe see, you know, and I don't know if this is how it works exactly, but see like the photo that maybe you looked at on my LinkedIn profile. I, don't, you know, <laughs> I, have, I have no idea um, in my interaction. And so I just, I really appreciate you sharing what that's like. Uh, with our listeners, because I think that's um, that's just the, uh, such a real part of the human experience. Oh, absolutely. That that ex that uh, experience of looking at a LinkedIn photo, looking at a person, looking at a LinkedIn photo, <laughs> looking at a person, and being like, "Oh no, <laughs> I have no idea. If this is really who I'm looking at. This looks maybe like it could be them, but it might not be. Oh, it's so challenging. I'll tell you a little bit uh, in a bit about how I how I get around that and. Uh, how that relates to the rest of my life. But I wanted to kind of um, relate to something that your husband experiences, which is, um, he, you know, he, he might have trouble seeing letters in the order that they're intended. And I do that with numbers. Um, and so I'm dyscalcic. And what that means is school is really hard <laughs> in general. Um, I did not do great in school. And it actually uh, was really challenging growing up. And I just became kind of a class clown. Because I figured, like, that's, that's my skill. Like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to people and I'm going to be personable because this isn't getting me anywhere. Um, and my teachers, they tried to encourage me. But I think sometimes as, I mean, I was an educator, right? So sometimes you see a child who's struggling and you think, oh, my gosh, like, I have to help them, this poor child. And in reality, you know, if you just support it and encourage them, they, they'll be fine. You know, everybody has unique skill sets. And so kind of the, the, what I experienced when I was going through school is I would take a class, I would do pretty poorly, I would make a friend, and then I would try and copy their homework and get a good grade. <laughs> so basically, the only way that I got good grades in school is by social engineering, to be totally honest. Um, and as I was going through school, I had... I had these ambitions, like I, I wanted to be a creative writer when I, when I got older and I wanted to be a poet. Um, and I, w I remember really distinctly being in eighth grade and going to my teacher who will remain unnamed and saying, hey, um, you know, I, I, I think I really want to go to honors English next year. And she said, oh, that's interesting. Why is that? I said, you know, I really think that I'm going to be a creative writer one day. I, I might want to work in 
you know, film or, or, or write screenplays. I'm not sure, but I think that's what I want to do. Um, but I need you to sign my form so that I can get into honors English. And she, she, she's like, Rachel, sit down. So she sat down with me and she was like, I got to be honest with you, Rachel. You know, some people go to honors English and they go down that type of path, but that's not you. I will see you one day on MTV. You'll be doing something like that, but you're not going to succeed in honors English. So I'm not signing your form. And I was, I mean, I was in shock that a teacher could think that they knew me, right? And think that they understood me and my brain and, and what I was capable of. Um, and so what did I do with that information? I said, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Walked out of that classroom and convinced another teacher to forge her signature <laughs> so that I could get into honors English. And I got in, into honors English and I got an A. You know, and it's one of those things that that experience taught me, like, we cannot just underestimate people. We have no idea what they're capable of. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to become an educator myself so that I could, you know, talk to these kids and, and treat them like human beings and hear from their experience and, and give them the encouragement that they needed. Because sometimes you just need someone to sign the form, you know, yeah. Yeah. you don't, you don't have to know if they're going to do great and they don't even have to do great because that's not the point of school. Totally. You know, yeah. they just need a chance. I, it just, it breaks my heart to hear that story. And for me, my little girl is three years old. My little boy is four months old. And I have since becoming a mom sort of become obsessed with early childhood development mm -hmm. and the idea that, you know, a teacher figure in my daughter's life could say to her, you're this, not that. Mm -hmm. um, it just, I've, I feel so disgusted by that idea because I sort of know and believe that we are all everything, you know, and that especially for a, a, a young person, you know, whether that be a three-year-old or a 13-year-old, you know, the future is completely undefined. Um, and, and I just think, um, you know, your story is so fantastic. I was reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, the other day. And one of the things that he talks about is um, having studied a population with the condition dyslexia um, and observing that many of these people actually sort of developed these coping mechanisms because they weren't able to sort of look at letters uh, the way that a lot of other people do. They ended up figuring out these strategies to live their life and to be successful in life, which actually, um, you know, in various um, individuals uh, gave them an edge as they were adults and as they went throughout their careers because they had developed these strategies that other people sort of didn't need to come up with. And, and one of the things that you and I talked about the other day, you were telling me that you were actually a person with, if I get the word correctly, dis, discalc, can you tell me that one again? I, yeah, yeah, I'm discalcic. Discalcic. So, yeah. and, and yet you chose to be a statistics TA. Tell me <laughs> yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. So that, um, that one was, that actually shocked me. Um, so I... I've always struggled with numbers, uh, the amount of time in, in all of my studies in school, the amount of time that I spend on things is sometimes double or triple what another person has to spend on that to get the same grade. It's just, that's how my brain works. That's my path. Um, and so I'm kind of used to it at this point, but when people would see me in college, they'd be like, oh my God, you've been studying for weeks 
for this exam? Like, why do you need weeks? And it's like, that's just where I'm at. You know, that's, that's, that's where, that's what I need. So, um, yeah, so I went to school and I knew I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to go somewhere into neuroscience and psychology. I wanted to understand my prosopagnosia. Um, and I wanted to understand some of the, the ways that my brain coped with prosopagnosia. And I'll get into that uh, in a little while. But, um, and that's why I went into that field. And the only way that you can graduate with a neuroscience degree is you have to be really good with, with statistics because you have to do studies. And I was like, oh goodness, like this is going to be horrible. And I was just, I was so fearful going in there because I knew like this is going to be my nemesis, right? And I go in there and everybody's, you know, doing great. And my first week, I'm really stressed. And I spent 10 hours preparing for my first quiz. You know, a quiz, it's like five questions long, but I put in the time. And when I get there, I get to the quiz and I got the highest grade on the quiz in the whole class because nobody else spent more than an hour. You know, I spent 10 times the amount of time on this quiz. And I was like, you know what? If I spend enough time, I might actually get really good at this because no one else is gonna spend that much time. Everyone else thinks they don't need it and they probably don't. And what ended up happening is I created this handwritten guide of how to get through the statistics class. And it was all if then statements. You know, if you see this type of problem, then you need to do this. If you see this, then you need to do this. And I created this, this guide and my professor saw it and she was like, whoa, you could teach this class. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 definitely not. I'm not saying that I could teach this class. I'm just saying that I need to prepare a lot for my quizzes. And she was like, no, Rachel, like, this is exactly the stuff that I create. Like, you could teach this class. And she made me a stats TA that year. And I was able to help so many students going through that class because I had this guide that took me hundreds and hundreds of hours to create. It was basically like my own version of a textbook. Um, and I was, I was a successful statistics teaching assistant and I helped grade and I, I actually understood the material, but that's because I had to cope with my dyscalcicness throughout the entire process. Um, and so, it, it, you know, what, what could have been a nemesis actually became a superpower. Well, and I think that it was certainly such a benefit to your students. I imagine particularly for the ones who, for whom statistics did not come easily. Um, mm -hmm. I also studied statistics in college and it was not, it didn't come easy to me. I would have <laughs> like it would have been so useful um, to have you as my teacher, um, someone who did kind of spend all this time, you know, you in your case, you know, you, you kind of say like you had to, you know, but the, the reality is you decided to do it. You decided to put in that time. You decided that, that doing well on this quiz and, and applying that to your life was important to you. Um, you developed this incredible discipline and work ethic. Um, and, and I actually want to kind of use that theme and pivot and learn a little bit about how in your more recent life, you've actually kind of turned that into um, entrepreneurship and, and building a company. These days, you're using all of your skills uh, and also your passion to train people and companies on the social engineering risks that they face. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what type of companies do you work with and what sorts of things do you share with them? Yeah, of course. 
Um, so with Social Proof Security, that's the name of my company, um, we do social engineering training, hands-on workshops, and we also do social engineering penetration tests. So we're helping people understand where they're opening themselves up to risk and then training their executives and their customer-facing teams um, and anybody who we feel like could be a target from what we see on OSINT um, to learn about these threats and be able to spot them. And so our trainings, because I learn really hands-on, um, as you can hear from my stats experience, I created my own book so that I could get, a, get an A. Um, we create these really hands-on workshoppy experiences that aren't lecture-like um, because I don't learn that way. And so it's important for me to make sure that I can people who are like me. Um, and also it's more fun when you get to actually try stuff. You can learn things experientially. So we come in, we train on some of the historic attacks that company has experienced um, by working with their leaders. And then from there, we walk through uh, examples of how you can spot social engineers over the phone, over email, in person, um, steps you can take if you notice a social engineer internally. Um, and then we actually give those employees a target and we actually teach them how to step into the shoes of a hacker and think about their experience from there. So what they're doing is they have a real life company that they're thinking about, okay, what information would I find online? How would I use that against this company? How would I build rapport in five to 10 seconds? What would my emails look like? Or what, would my, what would my voice sound like on the phone? And then from there we say, okay, and now what would they do with the information that they would find from your company publicly? And they map that back to their company and they realize all the ways that somebody would try and attack their company and how they could defend against it. And we give them phrases to help them defend against it. And it's such an eye-opening experience because if you tell somebody, this is how I would hack your company. They're like, okay, like that's scary. Uh, that, that sounds really freaky. Um, thanks for your time. But if you actually give them a chance to try it themselves, their eyes light up. They're like, oh, I totally get what they would say. And now I understand why the email would say this because they're trying to build credibility with me by name dropping. Or they're trying to you know, inject our fun hashtags in there to make them look like an insider. I'm not gonna trust that next time. And it's so cool because I don't have to uh, spell out every example of what a hacker would do at that point. Once we're already done with the training, they already can think of them on their own just by looking at the social media. And it's, it's so much fun. That's so cool. I, I particularly love sort of the role reversal technique that you use um, to put them into their opponent's sort of shoes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm sort of... As a mom with young children, I'm sort of like constantly thinking like, how do I best prepare and empower my children to live the best lives that they can? And hearing you talk about the, how, like the information and the knowledge that you provide to these companies, I'm like, all right, as soon as my daughter is like seven years old, I'm sending <laughs> her to your class because I want her to know, you know, not only how she can sort of be fooled by other people, but also how she can, you know, be aware of those techniques herself. And I just think it's, I just think it's incredibly important both in our personal lives as well as our professional lives, because, um, you know, in cybersecurity, there are so many problems to be solved. Um, and, and they come in all sorts of forms, right? It's, yeah. it's um, you know, some might say it's like easy, quote unquote, to do social engineering. I think, I, I don't think it's so much 
easy as it's a different skill set that different people have. Like there are some attackers who are incredibly technical and incredibly sophisticated in terms of their deep expertise in various programming languages, various infrastructure technologies, you know, and there are other people who are like, masters of human psychology and both of these can be used as weapons mm -hmm. um and so i just i just think that the work that you do is so cool thank um, you yes and and rachel i can't believe we've actually come to the end of our time but i want to say thank you so much for being so open and so genuine with us today uh, and for sharing yourself uh, in a way that, you know, again, if anyone's interested in Rachel and the work that she does, type her name into Google and you'll come up with so much cool stuff. Um, but I think, you know, what you shared with us today was, was really special and, and really open. And I just want to say thank you so much for that. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for hearing my story and all of the interesting ways that my brain works. <laughs> my pleasure. Rachel Tobeck mentioned Oliver Sacks' book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, and her company, Social Proof. If you would like to explore these or other resources, you can sign up for our Humans of InfoSec recap at resource.cobalt.io slash humans of InfoSec. You can also find us on Twitter at humans of InfoSec. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. Thanks for listening.